Uh, well, friends, uh, I've been on uh, Facebook for many years now, uh, and it's true to say, isn't it, that uh, everyone on Facebook wants to present their lives uh, in the best possible light. Uh, is that true for you? Uh, for example, uh, we don't put up pictures of, you know, last night's fairly ordinary spaghetti bolognese on Facebook. Uh, rather, we put up pictures of uh, the most amazing dishes that we've ever had in the most amazing restaurants. Uh, we don't put up pictures of perhaps going on holidays and having an argument with our spouse. Rather, we put up pictures of us having an amazing time at the most extraordinary locations. Uh, we don't put up pictures of you know, how we look first thing in the morning. I don't know how you look first thing in the morning, but it's not a pretty sight for me. But uh, we put up pictures of ourselves taken at the best possible angle, in the best possible light, so that the picture you put up doesn't even look like you. <laughs> and uh, I want to suggest to you this morning that uh, this is often how we can talk about our Christian lives and ministry as well. Uh, we give people the Facebook version, if you like, the sanitized version. Our Christian lives are going great, we say. Our relationships at church are wonderful. Our churches are growing. Uh, ministers are probably the worst offenders when it comes to this. Uh, if we have a congregation of uh, about 80 people, uh, we conveniently round it up to the nearest 100 uh, so that it, it seems a little bit more impressive. Uh, we say things like this, I think, because uh, we often think that that is what the authentic uh, Christian life and ministry should look like. Uh, we give the Facebook version of our ministry because we think that uh, it's all about looking impressive to the world. It's about big churches. It's about impressive preachers. It's about everything going well in life for us. What do you think? authentic Christian life and ministry should look like. Well, uh, we're beginning a new series this morning, as Chris mentioned, uh, looking at uh, the book of one, uh, 2 Corinthians. Uh, we'll be looking at this extraordinary letter uh, for the next 12 weeks or so. And uh, we've titled the whole series, actually, uh, Authentic Christian Ministry, because uh, in this letter, uh, God has much to teach us about what the authentic ministry and life of a Christian should look like. Uh, by way of background, you might know that the Apostle Paul in uh, Acts chapter 18 plants a church in the city of Corinth, uh, which was a significant Roman city in the region of Achaia. Uh, he stays there for a little while, uh, about a, a year and a half in fact, uh, preaching the word of God and trying to build up the church there. Uh, but after that, he, he leaves. And after he leaves, he keeps in touch with the church uh, through different people and through various letters that he wrote to the church. Uh, 2 Corinthians is actually uh, the fourth letter that, that Paul writes to this church. Uh, we've actually lost uh, two of the letters, but uh, the ones we have uh, are... Uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, uh, which are the letters that you have in your Bibles. Uh, 2 Corinthians is a multi-purpose kind of letter, 
But one of the reasons why Paul writes to the Corinthians is because false teachers have come to the city. Uh, Paul calls them super apostles later in the, in the letter. And uh, these false teachers come and preach a different gospel to the one that Paul taught the Corinthians. And uh, they cast doubts about Paul's ministry because, you know, uh, in many ways, Paul's ministry looks very weak and ineffective. You know, he's not a, a good public speaker, they say. He doesn't mix with the right people. His, his life is full of suffering and weakness. Uh, surely that kind of life and ministry is not from God, they say. You see, it seems as though the Corinthians were beginning to be seduced by these super apostles and they were distancing themselves away from Paul. Uh, to see this, uh, I want you to flip over uh, with me uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you have your Bibles there, uh, come over with me to chapter 11 and uh, listen to what Paul says about these super apostles uh, in uh, verses 3 to 6. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 to 6. Paul says to the Corinthians, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, every way we have made this plain to you in all things. So, what does Paul's ministry look like? If this is the kind of ministry that the super apostles were uh, putting forward uh, an impressive uh, and, and sig- uh, an impressive uh, and s- success in a, in a worldly sense kind of ministry. Uh, what, what does Paul's ministry look like? Well, uh, if you flip back with me over to chapter 1 again, uh, you can see there, uh, right at the beginning, that Paul's ministry is actually a ministry that is full of suffering and apparent weakness. Uh, Paul speaks about the recent suffering that he has endured. And so uh, have a look with me, for example, at at, uh, verse 8. Verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, uh, friends, we don't know what kind of affliction uh, that Paul is specifically talking about here. Uh, As you know, Paul suffered many things. Uh, He suffered uh, from great anguish uh, because of his concern for the churches. Later on in 2 Corinthians, we uh, read about his famous uh, thorn in the flesh, uh, which may have been a a physical kind of ailment. But uh, what is certain is that uh, 
in chapter one, he's not actually talking about, you know, the kind of suffering that everyone goes through from time to time, and perhaps you're going through a particular uh, period of suffering because of sickness uh, or tragedy or things like that. But the kind of suffering or affliction that Paul is speaking about here is the suffering that comes as a result of serving the Lord Jesus Christ and preaching the gospel. Uh, perhaps he's referring to a time when uh, he was attacked by a mob in the city of Ephesus, uh, which was a city uh, in, the, in the Roman province of Asia. And uh, Paul describes this as, an ins uh, as, a, as a great burden, uh, a bit like a ship that's taken on too much cargo. Uh, it was a burden on his ministry. Uh, in fact, he was so distressed at this time that he says that he feels as though his life had come to an end. But friends, uh, I want you to notice here that the reason why Paul writes to Corinthians, and uh, this first chapter in particular, is because he actually wants to bring comfort uh, to the Corinthian Christians. Uh, if you have a glance down uh, at uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, uh, I want you to quickly try to count the number of times the word comfort um, uh, comes up in those verses. Can, can you uh, quickly do that exercise? Uh, see how many times the word comfort comes up in verses 3 to 7, and uh, the first one with the right answer will, um, I don't know, um, I'll buy you a coffee or something like that. Uh, three to seven, uh, what is, how many times does the word comfort come up? Ten, yes, thank you. Uh, I don't know who came first, so uh, I won't buy that coffee. Uh, it's ten times, isn't it? Uh, you see, Paul wants to comfort, to bring comfort uh, to the Corinthians so that they might stand firm in their faith. Uh, but friends, uh, the English word comfort here, uh, I think, can be a little bit uh, misleading uh, in a sense. Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, Im just imagine the word comfort in your mind. Uh, what sort of things come to mind when you hear the word comfort? Food, yep, so we say uh, we'll have some comfort food, um, yep. Bed, yep, a, a nice uh, cushy bed is, is, is comfort, yep. Reassurance is comfort, yep, so when somebody uh, puts their arm around us and reassures us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those sort of things. Uh, I, I uh, googled uh, uh, the word comfort, and uh, these are the pictures that Google spat out at me, so can we uh, put the next slide up? Um, <laughs> fabric softener, um, an armchair, and a soft toy. Uh, you see, the English word comfort has the idea of removing any sort of uh, difficulty in your life, doesn't it? Uh, it's, you know, that's what it means to be comfortable. Uh, it, it's all about making you feel better by removing uh, any sort of discomfort or any difficulty in your life. And uh, so much of Christianity, I think, has swallowed this lie 
that if you follow Jesus, this is the kind of comfort that God brings to you. Uh, This kind of cushy, sentimental comfort that makes everything in life better. But the word comfort in the original language of the New Testament actually means uh, to come alongside someone, to encourage them and to strengthen them and to give them courage so that they can persevere through the most difficult of times. It doesn't have any of the the sentimentality of the English word for comfort. Uh, It's the same word that is used of the Holy Spirit, uh, the paraclete, uh, in John's Gospel, who comes alongside believers and strengthens them to continue to, uh, to look to Jesus and to persevere in the Christian life. Uh, There's an ancient uh, English piece of tapestry, um, and uh, we'll put the next picture up. Uh, uh, An ancient English piece of tapestry uh, showing a battle scene of a a ruler called Bishop Odo. And uh, uh, I don't know whether you can see the the Latin caption at the top of that that picture, but uh, I'm told that uh, that caption in Latin uh, reads... Bishop Odo comforts his troops. Does anyone do Latin? You might be able to confirm whether that's what it says. But uh, Bishop Odo comforts his troops. And uh, you can see the kind of comfort that Bishop Odo is is offering. He's going around with a big stick and just making sure that all his soldiers keep on moving forward uh, so that they don't give up the fight. Uh, it's, It's more that kind of comfort Uh, that is is spoken of uh, here. Uh, God's comfort doesn't necessarily remove the difficulties uh, in life or, you know, just offer sort of temporary uh, feel-good kind of emotions, but God's comfort encourages us and strengthens us and gives us resolve so that we can continue to uh, fight Uh, as Christian people. But how will this comfort come to the Corinthian Christians? How will this kind of comfort come to the Corinthian Christians? Uh, Well, it's not going to come from the super apostles who actually preach a different Jesus. Uh, No, it's going to come from the weak and unimpressive ministry of the Apostle Paul who is suffering for his faith. And so uh, if you have your Bibles open again, uh, have a look with me from verse 3. Let's pick it up from verse 3. Listen to what Paul says there. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Uh, Now, it's important, I think, for us to understand uh, who is the, the we and the us in this passage And who is the you? Uh, The we and the us refers to Paul, 
and his uh, apostolic band of missionaries. And the you there refers to the Corinthian Christians. And uh, so you'll notice there that Paul begins by speaking about the we and the us. He's speaking about himself. He speaks about his own afflictions and how how God comforted him in those afflictions. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Verse 5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. You see, as Paul suffers for the gospel, which is the inevitable consequence of following a Messiah who himself suffered before going to glory, well, he discovers that God profoundly comforts him as he suffers for the gospel. Uh, You know, there's a sense in which uh, you will never know comfort unless you go through difficulty, isn't it? Uh, the ch- you, know, you may have a child who has a loving mother, but it's only when the child gets sick that the child can experience the comfort of his mother who nurses him and stays up all night be- beside their bed. Uh, that's the sort of comfort Uh, That's the sort of thing that is going on here. I mean, can you imagine the deep comfort that Paul experienced during his intense period of suffering from the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, Paul is under extreme pressure. He has no more human resources to rely on. He's burdened to the point of despairing of life itself. And here is Jesus who he knows suffered, but whose suffering led to glory. Here is Jesus, who had promised him forgiveness and a place in heaven. What unimaginable comfort Jesus brings in the midst of suffering and affliction. But friends, notice that Paul is comforted by God here for a particular purpose. And that purpose is so that Paul might be able to bring comfort to others who are afflicted. Now have a look at verse 4. Verse 4 says that God is the one who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Verse 6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and, uh, and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. You see, what Paul is saying here is that his ministry is vitally important if the Corinthians are going to experience uh, the deep and profound comfort of God. If they go to the super apostles, they will be left with a false Jesus and a false comfort and hope. If they go with Paul, they will have the real Jesus and the deep comfort of believing in him. In fact, it is because of Paul's suffering 
that the Corinthian Christians were in fact brought the gospel and brought salvation. And friends, uh, that's how we are comforted as well, isn't it? As Christian people. It's as we align ourselves uh, with the apostles and their teaching. It's as we align ourselves with Paul's ministry that we come to learn and see who Jesus really is. We come to know the forgiveness of sins that is available through his name. We come to know the hope of heaven. We are comforted by the word of God that Paul brings to us in his word. But here's where the rubber meets the road. For we will only find comfort from God as we share in suffering for the gospel. We will only experience comfort from God as we share in suffering for the gospel. Now you can see it there in verse 7. Paul says, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our suffering, you will also share in our comfort. We know that as you share in our suffering, you will also share in our comfort. You see, friends, uh, this is what authentic Christian life and ministry looks like, isn't it? It looks like suffering. It looks like affliction. It looks like cost and difficulty for following Jesus. Now, uh, we live in a part of the world where we probably won't die for our faith in the same way that people died in Paul's time, although even that seems to be rapidly changing uh, in our day and age. But serving Jesus always involves a cost, doesn't it? It doesn't, if it doesn't involve blood for us, well, it certainly will involve sweat and tears. It involves saying no to our selfish desires and yes to Jesus and his kingdom. Is this what your life looks like at the moment? Is this what my life looks like at the moment? Uh, when I was in Melbourne a few weeks ago, we uh, noticed at the hotel we were staying that um, there were heaps of um, uh, apartments and office blocks going up. Uh, it was actually amazing. There were so many cranes and new, new buildings going up uh, that it seemed like there were more new buildings than old buildings. And uh, in front of uh, many of these new buildings that had been built... Uh, there were these signs inviting people to invest their money uh, into these buildings. Uh, and the sign, read, uh, the sign said this. It said, uh, the hard work is done, now sit back and watch it grow. The hard work is done, now sit back and watch it grow. Uh, what they were saying is you invest a little bit of money uh, into this uh, project, uh, all the hard work is done, the, the, the building has been built, and uh, you can just sit back and uh, enjoy the, the returns that come to you. Now, uh, that may be good investment advice, but uh, I want to suggest that that is not what it looks like to follow Jesus. 
Jesus sets a pattern for his followers that he himself walked. Suffering first, and then glory. And so Paul suffers for the sake of the gospel. And in fact, all those who want to follow Jesus are called to walk the same path. Uh, In one sense, uh, it's kind of easy being a part of church at nine, isn't it? If we're honest. Uh, I mean, uh, we've grown to be, you know, a a comfortable size now. Uh, It's quite possible to uh, just sit back and relax and uh, not get too involved in the ministry of the gospel here. You know, there are uh, quite a number of impressive people who uh, do a lot of the work for us. Uh, By God's grace, we are not struggling financially as a congregation although we are falling a little bit behind budget, but that's a story for another day. Uh, What will it look like for us to live the authentic life of following Jesus and serving him that God speaks to us about in this part of his word? Uh, Friends, uh, we've been thinking for a little while about uh, what it might look like to grow the gospel uh, in, in uh, the suburb of Enfield, which uh, is part of our parish. Uh, what if I said to you that we would love it if 30 of you uh, could leave church at nine and uh, in the not-too-distant future uh, go over and join uh, the smaller congregation in Enfield so that the gospel will grow in that part of the world? What would be your response? Um, It's going to be harder. There will be less human resources there, so you will have to do much of the work that uh, other people do for you here. Conditions won't be ideal for you uh, or your children. Would you still go? Uh, Would you be one of the ones who would be willing to go there? Uh, Perhaps even leave friends behind here because you want to grow the gospel there? Uh, Would you be the first to raise your hand because actually you're willing to do anything for the sake of the gospel? Or will you kind of wait and see who else puts up their hand and if no one really goes, then you'll just play it safe? Perhaps you'll wait till about 29 people have signed up and then maybe make that decision. Friends, uh, following Jesus involves a cost. Uh, It is not always comfortable. And I wonder what that kind of life would look like for us. Uh, Well, friends, uh, in the last few verses of our passage, uh, Paul moves from speaking about all the suffering and affliction he has experienced for the sake of the gospel to uh, speaking about a particular intense period of suffering, as we've just seen. Uh, I, noticed, I noted before that uh, it's probably referring to some kind of violent persecution that uh, Paul was facing, probably in the city of Ephesus. Uh, but I want you to see that as Paul speaks about this particular affliction that he suffered, well, he tells us of God's purpose for suffering. You see, uh, suffering 
for being a Christian is never an accident. It is part of the purpose of God. And so uh, let's pick it up from verse 8 and see what Paul says. Verse 8, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. Uh, Now it's obvious, as I said, that Paul is experiencing awful affliction here. Uh, He's facing great pressure. He has no human strength left to deal with the situation. But can you see that the purpose for which God allows him to go through this suffering is so that Paul can rely not on himself, but on the power and strength of God to deliver him from his situation. Suffering is God's way of teaching Paul that he is not sufficient in and of himself, and that he needs God to rescue him. You can see it there in verse 9. Indeed, we, have felt, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Uh, but further, Paul's suffering is also an opportunity, not only for Paul to rely on God and give up his own self-sufficiency, but also... Um, for the Corinthian church to begin to rely on God as well. Uh, That's why Paul asked the Corinthians to pray for his deliverance. Uh, Prayer is an expression of of reliance and trust, isn't it? And you can see it there in verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Uh, You see, it's as the Corinthians pray to God that he will deliver Paul from his affliction, that as God answers that prayer and delivers Paul from whatever he was going through, that everyone in the Corinthian church will see just how powerful and mighty God really is and, and give their praise to him. 